Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here on this beautiful December day. If we have not met before, my name is Austin, and whether it's your thousandth time here, your longtime family member, or your very first time, we're really glad that you came. Uh, we hope that you feel loved, that you feel welcomed, that you feel wanted, that you feel right at home here at the Vista. Um, before we jump in, I wanted to remind you about our yearly Vista end of year survey that we just sent out. So that's, it's a really simple survey. It literally takes like 30 seconds. I did it yesterday. It takes 30 seconds. Gives us some feedback and just allows us to kind of do a health assessment of our church, see where we're doing well, see where we can improve. And so please take some time over the next few days and do that at the vista.tv slash survey. Now today, today is the third and final Sunday of Advent. All right, Christmas is, is rolling up. We're getting ready for it. This, this season in which Christians all over the world, look back to the original coming of Christ into the world at Bethlehem, and then look forward to the future coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. And this remembrance of the past and expectation of the future enables us to live with increased awareness in the present. Think of it like this. Uh, seeing as how we are in very close proximity to Fort Hood, we have a lot of active duty and retired military folks here at the Vista. And over the years, I've got to spend some time with them and just learn that one of the things they experience and have experienced is just so much anxiety and trauma. Now, over the years, I have heard stories, you all know, stories of people, friends, you know, dying in their arms, bullets whizzing past their heads, the constant state of alert they have to live with when they're deployed. I, I remember the Sunday a few years back when this man came up to me after the service and he was so humiliated and embarrassed because in the middle of worship, he'd had a flash of PTSD when the percussion of the drum set. And when he dove down onto the ground, flight reflex was just kind of triggered and he was so humiliated by it. And I remember feeling so terrible for this man because that's no way to live. You know, literally our bodies were not made to bear the weight of constant anxiety. Our bodies break when they're under the weight of constant anxiety. It's no way to live. But on the flip side, uh, while our bodies were not made to bear the weight of constant anxiety, neither were they made to bear the banality of constant apathy. And I have seen a lot of that over the years too. People who, for whatever reason, they just really don't care about anything anymore. Have you ever met somebody like that? You ever been somebody like that? They don't care about their faith, their family, their friends, their job, their body, their health, their work. They don't really care about anything. And of course, no movie has better captured this phenomenon of chronic apathy than, of course, The Big Lebowski. Any Big Lebowski fans in the house today? Oh, yeah. So if you're not familiar, I'll summarize it for you. So the entire movie, or the main character in the movie is this character known as The Dude. Okay, it's Jeff Bridges in the role of a lifetime. Uh, and the central act of the movie is this case of mistaken identity in which some bad guys accidentally think he's the wrong guy. They beat up the dude, and in the course of this attack, they ruin his favorite rug. They, uh, they urinate on it, actually. And so the rest of the movie is literally the dude wandering around aimlessly, getting into all sorts of trouble, shootouts, car chases, bank robbers, all this crazy stuff. But all he's really trying to do is get somebody to replace his favorite rug. He's a lazy, passionless dude whose life is so defined by apathy that the closest he can come to caring about something is caring about his ruined rug. As the dude himself says it in the quote that literally summarizes the whole movie, 
All the dude ever wanted was his rug back, man. It really tied the room together. It's the whole movie. And here's what that has to do with Advent. Advent is a season in which we practice living with what I like to call peaceable readiness. Peaceable readiness. And the idea is that Advent is this yearly reminder to stay ready, to understand that God is at work. God is always at work in the world. And if you're asleep, if you're apathetic, then you are missing out on it. That sound that you hear every single day, just whizzing past you. You know what that is, right? That is your life, your one and only life passing by you like cars on I-35, man. So don't be the dude. Don't waste your one life wandering around aimlessly looking for somebody to replace your favorite rug because it really held the room together. So we live with a readiness, but it's a readiness that's also peaceable, all right? Meaning we don't live with constant anxiety because while we are always ready for action, we also know that the most definitive action has always already been accomplished for us because God raised Jesus from the dead, amen? And because God raised Jesus from the dead, that means nothing, neither height, nor depth, nor life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God that has been poured out in Christ Jesus, amen? I know it's early, but come on, amen? And because God has raised Jesus from the dead, this means we have much to be ready for. There's much to participate in. There is much that we get to invited to do with God. There is much to be ready for. But there is nothing to be anxious about. Some of you need to receive that this morning. There is much to be ready for. There ain't nothing to be anxious about because God raised Jesus from the dead. And that right there, that is Advent. Spending a month training ourselves in this peaceable readiness that characterizes the work of God. Now, the prophet Isaiah, he has been our Advent guide thus far, and he will be so again today. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Isaiah 61. We'll read verses 1 through 3. It's very short, but it packs a punch, I promise. All right, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. It'll be on the screen for you if you didn't bring your Bible. Prophet Isaiah speaking. He says, she is adorable. Uh, He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. So here in Isaiah 61, uh, the prophet, he's kind of speaking of himself. But he's also clearly kind of speaking of uh, somebody else, right? This future somebody else. And this future somebody else comes to be known, of course, as the Messiah, right? This figure who would deliver Israel into God's glorious future. And so what's it going to look like when the Messiah delivers Israel? Well, we get our first clue in the very first phrase, or the very first verse, right? It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So the spirit of the Lord will be upon the Messiah. And this is a clue as to what the Messiah is going to do because it's a phrase that is used throughout the book of Isaiah. We'll read three instances of it here briefly. Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 4. So the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Isaiah 32, verse 15 through 16, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field is considered a forest, then... Justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fertile field. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. There's a lot more. There's just three of them. And it's pretty hard to miss, and I don't mean to be patronizing, but uh, I know maybe the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, so we'll just... State the obvious and say that what we learn here in these texts is that when the Spirit of the Lord is poured out, the end result is justice, right? You heard it again and again. When God's Spirit is poured out, what we heard in all those texts is that God's justice will prevail upon the earth, which brings us to a very important question, a question that has become particularly pressing in our current American context. The question is this. What does God's justice look like? Now, what exactly does God's justice look like? And whether it's, you know, national politics or just your friendly neighborhood conversation, this question of justice keeps coming up. Have you noticed it again and again? This question of justice keeps coming up. And what becomes clear for for most of us when we talk about it is that we think of justice as fairness. Justice is fairness. Justice is everybody getting what they deserve. And uh, it's an okay theory. It's not bad. It's got plenty of biblical overtones. But one of the big problems with justice as fairness is that we, we struggle to agree on what's fair, don't we? I mean, like what you say is fair, I might not think is fair. What I think is fair, you might not think is fair. My, my oldest son, for example, he's made it abundantly clear that he thinks it is unfair, it is unjust that I get to tell him what to eat. I get to tell him, you got to finish the meat and potatoes if you want the Oreo. He'll say to me, Daddy, why do you get to tell me what to eat, but I don't get to tell you what to eat? Why do you get to tell me what to eat? To which I respond in all of my learned scholarly wisdom, you know, and I say, I get to tell you what to eat. Because I made you, boy, shut up and eat your vegetables. It's not a theological conversation. It's not a debate. Just eat them, and it will go good for you in the land. Respect your father. That's in there somewhere. So justice is fairness. And everybody getting what they deserve. It's an okay theory. It's not bad. But here's what tends to happen. When we take the theory and we take it out of the clouds, you know, we put it into practice in the world, what we really mean by justice tends to be something like this. Justice means me and mine get what we deserve when we deserve good, but not when we deserve bad, and everybody else gets what we think they deserve. Does that sound about right? Justice, justice means me and mine get what we deserve when we deserve good, but not when we deserve bad. And everybody else gets what we think they deserve. Now, um, anybody in the room maybe sense a few problems with this definition of justice? Maybe one or two problems? Yeah, namely, we're all very self-interested people, aren't we? I'm so interested in myself. I love me some myself. And so we always draw the lines of fairness, you know, tightly around ourselves, and typically to the exclusion of others. And I don't mean to sound pessimistic here. It's the Christmas season, after all. But uh, from where I'm sitting, it looks as though modern American culture is, is locked into this battle 
on justice as fairness, your fairness, my fairness, in which there is no human way out. Let's pray. No, um, it's pretty bleak out there. But one of the best things about being a Christian is that when there is no human way out, there is still a way out. So let's return to this question. What does God's justice look like? What's the Messiah going to do? Well, here's what the Messiah is going to do. We'll read it again, Isaiah 6. He's going to bring good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So most scholars agree that what Isaiah describes here is the favorable year of the Lord, right? He says the Messiah will proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's likely the jubilee year that was described in Leviticus 25. Okay, and so here's the idea. Leviticus 25 describes this law that God gave the people of Israel, wherein every 50th year would be a time of radical social restoration in which all debts were canceled. Sound good, anybody? Mm. All debts canceled. All slaves would be set free. And all property would be returned to its original owner. I know it sounds a lot like Bernie, but it's actually God there. Leviticus 25.10 describes it well. He says, you shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It's going to be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. Can you imagine what practicing this would do to a community? If every 50 years there was this radical social restoration in which people who had fallen behind for whatever reason, no questions asked, were shown tangible, physical, social, economic mercy. Can you imagine? I know you got questions. I got questions. We got questions over like, well, how would it, how would it work and would it be taken advantage of? And I don't know. And the biggest 25 has all sorts of prescriptions for making sure it's practiced the right way. And then there's this question of like how we apply this law given to the ancient nation of Israel to you and me today, right? And those are all good questions. I understand them. But I also think that when Scripture tells us to do something that we find wildly unrealistic, and we do all find this wildly unrealistic, We have to ask ourselves a question. It's an important question. Here's the question. Is God stupid? Is God stupid? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, okay? Venture out on a limb here and assume that you all probably agree with me when I say that Christians are not allowed to believe that God is stupid. And so when God asks us to do something that we find wildly unrealistic, the problem is probably not that God is stupid. God's not like, oh, I didn't think about that. What have some people taken advantage of? I just wish I could see more into the future. I would have never given this thought. No, rather the problem is that you and me, we are really, really, really small. We are so small. And so we struggle to see the bigger picture that God is painting, the bigger canvas that God is working with here, okay? And that brings us back to God's justice and what it looks like. According to Isaiah, God's justice looks like what? <clears throat> well, it looks like enslaved people set free, hopelessly indebted people released from debts, broken people comforted, tired people refreshed, and sad people made joyful. That's what it looks like. According to Isaiah, God's justice is total, okay? Which means it 
includes everything. Nothing is exempt. All of it is included. And over the course of Christian history, there has been this really unfortunate development wherein the totalizing work of God in Christ has become so spiritualized that we've forgotten that the gospel, y'all, the gospel is tangibly, physically, socially, economically good news for real people living in the real world and not just spiritually good news for spiritual people about where their spirits go when they die. Are you with me here? All right. And so, of course, the best example of all this, that the gospel is good news for real people in the real world, is who? Well, it's J.C. himself, right? Because he forgave sins. He did. A lot of stories about that. But he also healed crippled legs, didn't he? I remember that story. Pick up your mat. Your faith has made you well. You're walking home, man. You don't need that mat anymore. And he filled hungry souls with truth. He did. But I think he also filled hungry bellies with bread. You remember that story? I remember that story. The loaves and the fishes. Yeah, the little boys, the little lunchable, loaves and the fish. And, and he proclaimed, you know, the, the coming party, the cosmic party that was approaching all creation at the end of days. He did talk about that. But he also turned water into 250 gallons of wine at a wedding in Cana and threw the biggest party the Middle East has ever seen. It was a real party. It wasn't a metaphorical party, Okay. And so that's the first time we learn about what God's justice looks like. God's justice includes everything all the time, not just some things in the future. Right? First thing. Then second, and perhaps even more important thing that we learn about God's justice from Isaiah in Jesus is that God's justice doesn't mean everybody getting what they deserve, but rather everybody receiving mercy. God's justice, it doesn't look like everybody getting what they deserve. Thanks be to God. You ought to be happy about that one. Rather, God's justice looks like everybody receiving the mercy that they don't deserve. And we could spend days, weeks, months. You could spend the rest of your life trying to understand and live that out. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to invite you to ask God to show you the difference that it makes. When instead of walking around the world trying to impose your version of fairness on it, right? Because that's what most of us are doing. Trying to impose our version of fairness upon the world. Instead, we walk around the world looking for opportunities to show others mercy. The difference it makes when we walk around and we're not asking, what do you deserve? What do I deserve? What do you deserve? What do I deserve? What do you deserve? What do I deserve? Instead, we say, hey, what do you need? How can I serve you, help you, bless you? Not what do you deserve, but how can I be merciful to you? Can you imagine how different things would be? Let's close by reading the final phrase in our text again. Right, Isaiah 61.3, the very last part of it. Messiah is going to do all this stuff. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So a few years back, I shared with you uh, author Andy Crouch's somewhat unbelievable discovery, but I promise it's true, that uh, since 1900, there have been about 1,700 books written about changing the world. Right? So over 100 books a year get written about changing the world. But prior to 1900, there were approximately zero books that had ever been written about changing the world. It's astonishing, right? right? So to repeat, 
Nobody ever wrote a book about changing the world until the last 100 years. And now we write over 100 books every single year about changing the world. We modern people are obsessed with this idea that we can, that we should, that we must, that we got to change the world. Everybody's got to change the world. And so I told you back then, and I'm going to tell you again, okay, this is important. You can't change the world, man. I made an inspirational meme for you that would inspire you to realize you cannot change the world. You cannot change the world. Are you kidding me? Do you know how little you are and how big the world is? You're going to change the world. Some of you can't change a tire. You can't change a Wi-Fi password. You can't change a diaper. And you think you're going to change the world? It's childish gibberish. Enough of that. Right? But I'm not trying to deflate you. I'm really not. Rather, I'm telling you this because it's important for you to understand. Because if you get fixated on fixing the world, then one of two things tend to happen. Now, the first one is, you know, you get fixated on fixing the world. I want to fix the world. Then you get out there into the world, and you realize uh, there is a lot of stuff that needs fixing. And so what do you do? You cope with it by shrinking the world down to the size of your desires. Maybe the desires of your inner circle, too. You become the dude wandering around the world looking for somebody to replace your favorite rug. Then some of us try to fix the world. We quickly realize there's far too much to fix. And we cope with it by spending the rest of our lives in this perpetual rage. Maybe it's low grade, but it's always there. Chronically, you know, just scolding and judging our way through life. We're always angry, anxious, and annoyed. So now let's, let's juxtapose those two very understandable but mistaken paths with the path that Isaiah lays out for us here in Isaiah 61. Because after telling us, after proclaiming that God's joyful justice will proclaim upon the earth, Isaiah tells us what it's going to look like. What's it going to look like? Well, it's going to look like the growing of a grove of oak trees. Have any of you ever planted an oak tree before? I have a little acorn from my yard. Anybody ever planted an oak tree? I'm the only person in who has ever planted oak, just me and you planted oak trees. We can talk later. Um, so I planted an oak tree once. My wife and I were in South Carolina, and we visited the angel oak. Have you ever seen the angel oak? It's beautiful. I mean, this enormous, sprawling live oak tree. It's rumored to be like 500 years old. It covers like 65 football fields or something. It's insane. So we're there, and I, uh, I borrow an acorn, bring it back home, and plant it, because I was going to grow the angel oak of Central Texas, you know, in my backyard. So I plant it. Sprouts up immediately. This is amazing. But then after a few weeks, I, uh, I realized I had committed myself to a very long process. And I gave up. Because as it turns out, ancient oak trees that cover 65 football fields, they don't just spring up overnight. Uh, they take like 75 years to mature. And then they can last for years, maybe even decades. And so when Isaiah tells us that God's joyful, merciful justice poured out on the earth is going to look like the growing of a grove of oaks. What do you think he's trying to tell us? Why use that image? Well, it, it, it would seem that he's trying to tell us that it is a, a strong, a steady, a stable, but a very, very slow process. And that's hard for modern people like you and me, right? Because we like fixes that are loud and immediate. I'm going to call the plumber. I'm going to call the electrician. I want to get it fixed. We like fixes that are loud and immediate, but God offers healing that's quiet and slow. It took me a long time to understand this, y'all, but God doesn't fix things, okay? God doesn't fix things. You're looking for a fixer. God's not your guy. God doesn't fix things. God heals things patiently, quietly. I love the way my friend Brian Zahn puts this. 
He says, we're convinced that to change the world, the kingdom of God needs to sound like a deafening construction site. Bulldozers and jackhammers. But the kingdom coming doesn't sound like a construction site so much as it sounds like a forest growing. Ever heard a forest grow? Got to listen long and careful if you're going to hear a forest grow. Here's the invitation I want to leave us with. In Christ, God is, even right now, pouring out his merciful, joyful justice upon the earth. And the best way for you and yours to participate in that is to let God plant you somewhere. A lot of us have been walking this planet for a long time, but we've never really been planted. We've got those shallow little dandelion roots, man. They're gone just like that. You need to let God plant you somewhere. You're kind of here, kind of there, kind of there. You need to get planted somewhere. Specifically, uh, you need to let God plant you in yours in this little grove of oaks that we call a church. It doesn't have to be this church. A lot of great churches. But you need to let God plant you somewhere because a church is a place, a place in space and time where we practice God's joyful, merciful justice among ourselves. I don't ask, what do you deserve? I say, hey, how can I show you mercy? That's what you say to me too. Well, we pour it out on the world as we find ourselves in the world and then we invite a tired, weary, transient, rootless world to come on inside, find some shelter and get planted. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We, uh, we don't deserve to be here. It's hard to remember that. But we pause in these moments and we remember it and we receive the gift of our existence, of our forgiveness, of our redemption. We are not entitled to it. We pray that in these moments, God, you would help us to remember that your mercy really isn't about everybody getting what they deserve. We get very hung up on that, everybody getting what they deserve. And we just pause to be reminded that we don't want everybody to get what they deserve because that wouldn't go so well for us. God, we are sinners begging for the mercy of God. And so we remember that and ask in these moments, God, I ask for so many of us that you would help us to just let go of this desire to impose our version of fairness upon the world. Help us realize that we're all guests at your table. We all have much to be forgiven for, much to be grateful for, and that we would walk the world as people who just want to show others mercy because we understand how much mercy we have been shown. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.